Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Business Brew. I am your host, Bill Brewster. I was listening to Michael's book, Biggest Mistakes. I thought it was great. I've heard a lot of people say positive things about Michael that know him. I met Michael very briefly at the Ritholtz Future Proof conference last year. All the channel checks on him come back positive. My experience is positive. I figured I'd put him in your ear. I hope you enjoy the episode. I enjoyed recording it. I don't know if Michael enjoyed recording it. He doesn't particularly enjoy being interviewed, but I think we did a good job together. So hope you enjoy. This episode is sponsored by stratosphere.io. That's S-T-R-A-T-O-S-P-H-E-R-E dot I-O. Stratosphere.io is a web-based terminal that has financial data, KPIs, links to filings, hedge fund letters, and much more. What is that much more? That's a good question. How about if I told you there was a little tab for modeling? Some of you are going to be like, I don't think that that's as good as my 2,500-row model that I build from scratch. Well, guess what? You're probably right. But Stratosphere.io helps you with modeling back of the envelope napkin math, maybe a good starting point, maybe not the end result, but maybe something that helps you give a good look-see, say, hey, I do like that. You can put in revenue growth. You can put in your EBIT margins. You can put in your depreciation divided by your revenue. You can put in your total cash divided by revenues. You can put in your receivables that you want in a target, your inventories, your payables, all that stuff. You can do that. And then Stratosphere can help you put out a potential target price that maybe you may want to think about whether or not more due diligence is required. I think that's pretty cool. I haven't seen that many other places. Braden and his team put that in there. I think that this is a product that if you're looking for some financial data provider and a modern UI, this should be on your list of things to check out. And guess what? It's free. So not a whole lot of reasons to say no. Maybe you sign on, you don't like it. You say, you know what? Next. Maybe you sign on and you love it and you say, I really want to sign up for the KPIs and I really want to sign up for some of these premium things. And you know what? My good man, Bill Brewster, has given me the promo code BREW, B-R-E-W, for 15% off and I appreciate that. And I'll tell you what, I appreciate you checking it out. So go to stratosphere.io for a free trial. Again, S-T-R-A-T-O-S-P-H-E-R-E dot I-O. All righty. With that out of the way, you know the drill. As always, none of this is financial advice. All the information contained in this program is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult your financial advisor before making investment decisions and do your own due diligence. Ladies and gentlemen, joined by the not-so-irrelevant investor anymore, Michael Batnick. How's everything going, man? Hey, man. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. You come highly recommended by Dan McMurtry, Alex Morris, and Tom Morgan. And those are three people oh, that okay. I like. Fine gentlemen. Fine gentlemen. Well, they're, they're at least, yes, they are. I'd make a joke, but they don't deserve jokes. So what's good, man? How's life? Life is great. My personal life is good. My professional life, I was going to make like a nine and a two joke. You made a stern reference before we got on. And the Giants are good. So that's really important to me. It's been a long, long time. So I'm excited for tomorrow and it's all good. Win or lose, it's already, you know, it's house money. I want to win, but it's, you know, I'm, I'm excited. I'm really excited. 
There you go. I got some Eagles fans down here that are excited about their season too, but my grandma's been a longtime Giants fan. She's a big time Yankees fan, and That's I don't awesome. know how many more she's got left in her, so I'd like, yeah. like her to see a couple. Man, I pinged you. I don't know if you remember, we met at Future Proof, and then I, I was listening to your book, and I was like, I should have Michael on. So I appreciate you coming on. I was fascinated by the Mark Twain chapter in the book. A guy that just couldn't give up, huh? Yeah, that was the one that I had the most fun researching. I read a couple of books on him, and it turns out that he was just filled with envy and FOMO and greed and all of those sort of characteristics that we've all encountered in our investing journey. But he couldn't stop, to your point. Like, he just kept getting suckered. Like, he was an easy mark, and he knew it, and yet he couldn't help himself. And so what he did to pay his debts was essentially, from my understanding, like the first world stand-up comedy tour. He like did the Bill Burr thing, I guess huh. 150 years prior or however long ago it was. And he got just hoodwinked by by everything. And it was kind of, a lot of it was like, I guess what we would call like venture capital type stuff these days, just moonshot, crazy ideas. One of them was sort of like a typewriter that never worked. And it was just, he just kept sinking money, money, money. And yeah, he, he was something. And he's the only person in the book that is not an investor, Right. That's not certainly not what not what anybody knows him for, but he was an interesting character to say the least. And he was obsessed with investing. Right. Could like he stop. really loved it. Could not stop. And I forget how it ended. I think there might have been a happy ending with money. I can't remember exactly. It's been a while since I wrote that. But yeah, he couldn't stop. He just could not could not stop. I'd like to see Twain and Bogle talk to each other. He'd probably be like, I don't care, man. I'm I'm all in on this stuff. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I just heard like the of, juice. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever heard of a little thing called fun, Jack? <laughs> That's right. You can't put a price on fun. Although in this case, that fun was expensive. But listen, I, I get it. I think uh, Twain and I, in some respects, are cut from the same cloth. And wow, that sounded ridiculous coming out of my mouth. I just mean like the No, you know, I the dig action. from an investor's standpoint. Yeah, the action. Yeah, yeah, we all yeah, like yeah, the action. Yeah. yeah, well, and obviously you're a better writer. He would wish no, yeah, literally, that you wrote like... Yeah, we're very, very similar. <laughs> Do you mind talking a little bit? I'm asking as somebody that, you know, I admire how what you've done with your career and how you've worked your way into finance and what you built. Do you mind talking a little bit about how to build an online presence in an authentic way and like what has worked for you? I think one of the things that I admire about you and that comes back a lot about you is that like you're you, right? And like, it's pretty cool to see you succeed in this way. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So I, I was a disastrous student, child growing up, maybe not child. Like I just, I didn't take my education seriously at all. And so I got into trouble when I graduated from college and I was, you know. Thank you for having your phone on in the middle of an interview. What are you? Come no, on. No, do not disturb. Do not disturb. <laughs> there we go. It, speaking of, it's uh, it's Super Mugatu texting me. Oh, there you go. So yeah, I graduated college and I was like, oh, this is why people go to school. Like, I get it now. I wish somebody would have told me. Now that my parents didn't try to tell me. But so a lot of the inspiration, not that I ever like wrote this down, but I, I was a lifelong Howard Stern fan. And I think that one of the things that people enjoyed about him to the extent that they did was the fact that he was honest with his audience. Yeah. Right. For better and for worse. And I think to that point, authenticity is important. And like, without being like preachy, like without like, you, you can't tell people I'm not that you're authentic, right? You just have to be there and be honest with the goods and the bads and be consistent and show up. And I don't know that I had like this grand master plan, right? That like this was going to be my path because I was just so happy to 
Like when Josh and Barry hired me, I was just thrilled to have a seat at the table because there was a lot of dark years where for the life of me, I couldn't even get an interview, you know? And yeah. I was ready to just hang it up and just go work at a retail store. I really had no idea what to do. Yeah, so that's just that. It's just being consistent and authentic and people smell bullshit a mile away. Yeah, no doubt. Right, and you can't really hide your true character on the internet because people find out. Yeah. So you were in sales. As I recall the story, you grabbed Josh. You were like on a train or something. He was yeah. on the train. Yeah. So one, how how long had you followed him and like interacted with him? I probably started following Josh in 2009. And then, and then when like did that. you meet him on the train? I want to ask 2011. This, I want to ask this for like the younger guys that yeah. listen to this and kind of are trying to think about how to break in, right? So you were prepared when you grabbed him, right? And then yes. like you were at a point where obviously the pain of not grabbing him and changing your life exceeded the pain of saying like, fuck it, I'm just going to grab this guy. And if I get rejected by him, whatever, right? Like, let's have this conversation. Do you think your sales skills are innate or do you think that you've like built them over time? Oh, I, I have no sales skills. Really? Yeah, I'm, I am not a salesman to this day. I could sell something that I like have conviction in, but I can't convince somebody to buy something that I don't believe in, which is why I've failed yeah. miserably. Which is, kind of, you know, that's like, I'm not like a hero. That's a very normal thing, right? It's kind of sociopathic if if you are able to sell something you don't believe in. <laughs> yes, I, I agree with that. Right? When like I say that, yeah. sales, I more mean like there's a, a lack of a fear of rejection or the ability to get over the fear of rejection, right? And well, like, I, I view that as sales. So, okay, so I always had inner confidence, which was probably irrational because I had done very little to deserve that. But that's just something that you're born with. You don't choose to like be depressed or be happy, right? That's just like in my personality. I wasn't outwardly confident, right? Like I can't like go up on a stage in front of 300 people and like wow an audience. Like that's not my personality. But when I saw Josh, I had nothing to lose. First of all, to your point, I was prepared in the sense that I was obsessed with learning and catching up on lost time because I had spent 25 years fucking around and just being an idiot, frankly. And so when I saw him, he was like the guy that I was looking up to because I saw a lot of really nasty practices at the insurance company, right? And just straight up people lying, like absolutely lying. And I didn't know anything, but I knew that people weren't telling the truth and I was not cool with that. And I saw that Josh was telling his version of the truth of what he saw and the brokerage industry, and it was similar practices, different product, but similar practices, similar people. And so I really respected that. And I don't know that I necessarily hesitated. Like he walked past me and I was like, oh. and I turned around and I, I grabbed him. And we spoke for like 15 minutes. And then when I saw that he and Barry were interviewing, I sent him a message and followed up. And so I was, I was incredibly, incredibly lucky. There's no other way to put it, that the stars had to align. Cause it was like a Friday night at 11 o'clock and I was at a Knicks game and the Knicks were getting blown out. And like all of these things had to had to align. The part of it that wasn't luck is that there was a lot of resumes on his desk and mine was easily the worst, like easily the worst. And I guess I benefited in the fact that they couldn't pay anybody, right? And I-, I You're I like, I'll work for, for free. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so I was lucky yeah. too and, and they were too in that respect, but I was prepared. And it was clear that I was obsessed and I was hungry. And I would have done anything. And I literally, I said, I will do anything for you guys to get this job. But I also wasn't pretending. I wasn't like coming in there like guns blazing, look how smart I am. Because again, like that's obviously, nobody wants to work with a kid who thinks they know everything. Yeah. And so I think that I was wise in that sense to not go in there and try to bullshit this guy. 
Like that was not my objective. It was the opposite. Listen, I know what I know. I'm in it every day and I'm trying to learn and be a sponge. Here's what I can do. I'll do whatever you want. And I, I know that's amorphous, but whatever you don't want to do, like I'll do. Yeah. And I'm going to work as hard as I can to do it. Yeah. Let me remove this shit off your plate and right. I'll make sure I do a good job at right. it. Yeah. I think that's interesting. When you were at the insurance company, did you have the inner confidence or did that like no. tear you down a little bit? No, no, no. Yeah. Inner confidence. Yeah. I was, I was a 20. I know you didn't believe in the product, but I was curious I didn't what believe it did in the product. I was a 24 year old balding guy and that sucked to be that young and like lose your hair and like in a suit. Like it was just such a ludicrous combination of awkwardness and, and awfulness. So no, I didn't believe in myself, but I, and it was humiliating. Like it was a bad experience. So what I would do is I would go to the office every day only because I had literally no place else to be. I had no manager. I was floating around. I was paying rent in the office. Like literally I was paying 400 bucks a month for the privilege of working there without a salary, with no intention of, of selling. Like I try, I probably tried for like six months. I don't even know if it was that long before I smelled the roses. You know, I was like, Ooh, this is, this is not good. But I stayed because I know where else to be. And so I would go there and use it as an office and I would read about the market. I was reading Ed Yardini and David Rosenberg because somebody was forwarding me their stuff. And so I was reading that and eventually I stopped because it was just too depressing to continue to go in. And I transitioned to the library. But no, I, I had no confidence, no confidence whatsoever. So the reason I ask is I had a fair amount of confidence, overconfidence, I might add. And then I thought I was going to take over the world. I figured that I'd start this flooring company. It was a franchise. They had had other businesses that they created. And then like I started this franchise in 2008 and 2009. And selling floors in 2008 or 2009 was really fucking hard. And that yeah, thing no crashed and burned pretty badly. And I remember like I slept at the office to try to get it off the ground. And when it was all said and done, I don't know, man, I was like completely crushed. I almost didn't believe that I had something to like offer the world. And then sort of like you, I had a grandma's friend who sent me two Bogle books and the intelligent investor. And I don't know why he slipped the intelligent investor in. I think he has like a sixth sense of humor, right? I think I could have just indexed and moved on uh, very happily. But I'm really grateful that he did because it sent me down this path of curiosity that kind of like rebuilt me, right? For mm. lack of a better term. And then I had a death in the family that my wife and I decided that I had to learn how to manage our money because that would mean a lot more to us financially. Then Toby put me on a podcast and yada, yada. Now I'm here. So I was actually going to say that the reason why I was able to pay rent and not have an income was because when I was in college at home, going to Queens College, I had nothing to do but work full time. So I was a waiter six days a week and I had saved up enough money to enter the world with a good cushion for a kid. And I depleted all of that. And when my mother passed away, she left me some money. And so that gave me another cushion, which I, I mean, needless to say, I did not want that money. But I thought that I would turn that money into a lavish lifestyle. I would, I would 50x that and I would be the next Paul Tudor Jones. And similar to you, I read The Intelligent Investor and got the bug and read a random walk down Wall Street. And I said, what a joke this book is. Biggest idiot ever. Get this garbage out of my life. <laughs> By the way, I reread, I reread a random walk and it's not so stupid. It turns out. Yeah. You were like, I'm going to buy cheap PE stocks. <laughs> I'm going to buy five of them and it's going to be yeah. sweet. And then you were like, yeah. oh, there goes everything. 
Yeah. So <laughs> I, I hopped around from the, the I'm like using air quotes where I say fundamental because I, you know, that's, I don't want to insult like real fundamental analysts. And then I did the technical and then I traded options like a junkie. And, but I think one of the things that I did that was so critical to my learning was I knew it wasn't going great, right? Like my trading, but I kept a journal. And I think it was Brian Lund who I saw this from. And this is a long time ago. This is like probably 2010. So I owe that guy a hug for this because every single day I wrote down what I was saying, what I was doing and why. And when I tell you the why and the what was like the cringiest, like funniest thing ever, believe me, it was. But when I look back like three, six, 12 months later, those were my words. Yeah. Like I couldn't point to anybody else. That was actually my thoughts. And so I was embarrassed reading my own thoughts and it held myself accountable, right? And so I couldn't bullshit myself. And I think a lot of people are really, really good at that. I mean, everybody is. I don't want to say everybody is great at fooling themselves, but I couldn't do it because I wrote it down. And it was only kind of an accident, right? It wasn't like my idea. Like I saw somebody suggested and I said, oh, that sounds like a good idea. I'm going to be a serious trader. I'm going to keep notes in my journal. And thank God I did because it didn't go well. Yeah. I mean, Jim is really, Jim O'Shaughnessy is really big on this stuff. And it's very hard to read your own handwriting and be like, no, that's a liar that wrote that, right? Yeah, it's like, oh yeah. shit, I did think yeah. that. Yeah, it's you. I'm going through it with cable. I've owned it for a while. And like, I don't know, it's funny. Like, you know, you read these guys like Marathon and they're they're all about these capital cycle theories. And I, you know, knew, quote unquote, that there was fiber coming and I didn't care at the time. And now that I'm living it, I'm like, man, this is a lot more emotional to live than I anticipated, right? You read like all great investors need to live through drawdowns. Okay, cool. Well, what's that really feel like? And then when do you really know that you're wrong or if price is telling you, like, it's really difficult, man. It's the whole thing. Yeah. So it's, it's the whole thing, right? Like you could be a great analyst. You could forecast to the penny what the company is going to earn and the free cash flow and whatever other adjustments there are. But like, living through different investors' moods and the investors around you and their moods and how they're treating the company. It's brutal. And I think there's no there's no way to simulate that experience, right? And that's the hardest part. Yeah. And then, you know, if you spend any time on social media, you got everybody telling you an idiot when the stock's going against you, right? And when things are going well, they're probably not saying, you know, hey, you should maybe consider selling right now, right? Like, it's almost like pro-cyclical emotional behavior. Yeah, it's great. It's really, it's really good. It's great for your mental health. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. I wonder how it could possibly be a bad thing to to spend time doing. Yeah, but whatever. I don't know. I think on average, it's been a huge benefit. How did Future Proof come about? How do you guys think about that? Yeah, so we've done the conference thing and been to a lot of financial conferences, and the takeaway is always the same. Man, I wish I would have had more time with my friends. Yeah, right. Like it's not fun to be in a ballroom, to be whispering shoulder to shoulder, four dudes talking about smart beta. Like, it's just not fun. It's not fun. The way that people learn these days is different, right? Obviously, podcasts are a huge part of it. People don't necessarily need to travel to see a name because they could hear the name Jim and Cliff just did a podcast together. Like, you don't need to travel to see them. Yeah. And so what we really wanted to lean into was the networking aspect. And I think we did a really good job with that. And I think we're going to do an even better job next year. But so that was that was the main idea. So we had worked with the guys that like did the logistics, the advisor social group, and they were great to work with. And so we said, let's just let's do this and let's see if it works. Yeah, man, it was sweet. Podcasting from the beach is a view I could get used to. It was a good time. If we do get invited back, can I make a request though? Can you not put Please. us 
don't put us up against Gunlock again. Oh, is that what it was? <laughs> it was very difficult. <laughs> it was like four people uh, in the crowd. Which shout out to y'all. I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> but I was like, oh man, Poland yeah, Jeff in his hometown, real... that's tough. <laughs> yeah, those four are the real MVP. That's, yeah. yeah. Who, who were you on with? Were you on with Toby? Yeah, Toby and Jake and I. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was fun. And then I watched the guys from behind the tape. That was really fun. Danny Moses, I ended up talking to him for a while. Porter Collins and what is it, Vinny? It was great, man. I had a good time. Hung out with Morgan Housel. Yeah. Oh, oh, wait, where? We were just chatting for a while. That's that's the nice thing about it, right? Back by the food trucks. We just hung okay. out. Okay. Yeah. So I we did a podcast with Danny, Dan, and Guy. And I've known Dan, Nathan for a while and, and Guy, but I never met Danny before, but really nice guy. Yeah. He doesn't hold back, Mm-mm. which I like. Yeah. It's entertaining. He scared me a little bit. I get that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, all right, this is this is alpha male here. Yeah. So, all right, what about the compound? How do you guys think about this? You're very good at media. Like, do you think it goes back to like growing up listening to Stern or is yes. it, it? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I do. I think for our business, what we've been able to do really successfully is convert fans into clients and fans into employees. Like quite literally, almost, I would say 90% of the people that I work with are here because they like the content and they like us. And needless to say, not everybody does, but for the people that do, like they know us and it helps, it helps the sales cycle a lot. And I even hate to use the term sales cycle, but I don't know what else to call it. But when a person reaches out to us to discuss their financial situation, we're on second base, right? They're talking to us for a reason. Might be a bad reason. It might be a good reason, but there's a reason. We don't have to introduce who we are and how we think about the world. And that helps a lot. And the other part of it that helps a lot is... We have a constant stream of people that do reach out to us. So we don't have to oversell. We don't have to say yes to everything and everyone, especially when we know that they don't want what we actually do and they're not going to be happy with what we actually do. And so it's really liberating because this is a really tough business, right? Like to convince somebody to give you their life savings, it's not easy. And people will say and do a lot of things in order to do that. I'm not trying to preach. Like I, I was there. And so not having to do that is an incredible luxury that I never take for granted. Yeah. I would imagine that it helps. And I, and I don't, yeah, I'm not saying like closing in a negative way, but I would think it helps close the sale because it's a much more empowering place to come from where it's like, look, if you don't like us and we don't like you, we shouldn't do business, right? Like yeah, we don't actually exactly. need you yeah. as a client. We're both choosing each other. It's exactly right. That's much more symbiotic than like, I got to close this deal to keep my firm open or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How was it when the doors were just opening? Was there a lot? I mean, obviously there was a lot more pressure, but did you guys have as much fun in the startup phase as you're having now? That's a really good question. So I felt no pressure when we started. I know that Barry and Josh did. They were obviously in different points of their career. This was like, all right, we've done something for X number of years, Barry longer, and we're going to really go for it. I was just thrilled to have a job, Yeah, you know? So I started with Josh and Barry in 2012. I think mayor, I can't remember what it was, whatever, spring, fall of 2012. And we left the RA that we were at in September of 2013. And it was crazy exciting. And over the years, it's been a blessing. And I'm super fortunate to be on this ride. And it's funny, like different levels of fun and pressure. And I feel a huge sense of responsibility 
for my employees and our clients. And I'm having a lot of fun. I don't know if fun is like the adjective that I would use to describe my experience because it's not a game, right? Like this is very, very serious, a very serious business we're in. So it's been unbelievable. I don't know if the, the sort answer is sort of all over the place, but that's where I'm at. No, I get it. It's funny. I, I thought that I would get a lot of enjoyment out of like picking stocks and doing the research and stuff. And what I have come to find over time is I get much more enjoyment out of doing stuff like this. I miss team building and I think a greater purpose. Sometimes I wonder if the wealth management side of the world where you're like really truly helping people get through questions that they don't have expertise on but are very important in their life. I wonder if that'd be a much more fulfilling existence for me. I, I tend to think the answer is yes. I'll address that in a sec. I just want to rewind a little bit. I think maybe when I was having the most fun was when my blog started to get traction and I started to generate like my own audience. Obviously, I'm, you know, sitting on the shoulders of Josh and Barry. And it's I still have to pinch myself, again, considering where I came from. Again, self-inflicted. I'm not like, I had all the privileges in the world. Like I fucked up. I didn't come from hardship. But given how close I was to like a really not so great career, the fact that there was people that like were interested in what I had to say and like I was engaging with the audience, like that was such a trip at the time. And something that I still like, I'm very, very grateful for the audience. But yeah, I guess 2013, 14, like 15 was like, oh my God, this is really happening. Yeah. So in terms of like the wealth management and the satisfaction, so I'm not an advisor. So I don't have those sort of interactions with clients where they're like, I can't tell you what a relief it is to have this mental burden off of my shoulders. Like I see it all the time. You know, we get emails and I and I see it and it, and it gives me nachis, which is a, I guess it's the Yiddish word, just great joy and satisfaction to the fact that like, listen, there's so much more to it. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about wealth management. There's a lot more to it than picking a bunch of ETFs, right? Like, in fact, I don't want to say it's like the least important aspect, but letting people know that they're going to be okay. Yeah. Right. Like answering the hard questions. It's a privilege. It really yeah. is. Well, and you've got people like, I mean, I think of my own mom and she's the person that's sending me like this guy on YouTube says the world is going to crash. And like, should I be worried about this? I'm like, no, you can calm down on that. Like I, you know, so to be able to help somebody like that facilitate life, I would think to be a part of a team, right? Even if you're not the direct advisor, I, I just think that would be a rewarding place to be, especially like you said, I mean, way better than selling insurance. <laughs> <laughs> just a bit. And yeah, like when things are just going straight up, it's a little bit more difficult to show, you know, the value add, at least in the eyes of certain clients for sure, which I totally understand. But when times are challenging and to be able to look somebody in the eyes and say, listen, you hired us to get through these things and to get you to your your goals and destination. And that's what we're, we're going to do that. We're absolutely going to do that for you. And so, yeah, it's very rewarding. Yeah. I mean, you end up being a lot of a behavioral coach, right? Making sure yeah. that people stick to the plan, yeah. but that's yeah. like anything in life. Absolutely. Yeah. You're basically a financial personal trainer at that point, I think, which yep. makes a ton of sense. Right. One thing you said, what did you say? You said that you think that people should buy stocks that went higher, I think is, is what you said in the interview that I was listening to. And I think the reason that you said that was you said that you came into the game like a Ben Graham sort of disciple or, or fancying yourself as one and realized real quick that momentum and negative momentum are real. Yeah. Do you mind like riffing on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so it took me a while to like, 
and I'm, I'm, I'm still, obviously, we're, we're all still learning, but it took me a while to like put the pieces together of like, okay, there's investing, there's trading, there's speculating, there's different timeframes. And I didn't know what I was, but I knew that the idea of buying something for what less than what it's worth, like it makes intuitive sense, right? You're taught to buy low and sell high. And so I think one of the things that people do is they'll look at stocks that have gone down a lot and they'll confuse like down 80% with something that has good value. Right. And, and I still do that to this. Like, I, I, you know, I can't get that out of my system, unfortunately. But I learned, and this was everyone's a product of the investing environment in which they begin investing, I believe. So I started doing this in 2000. I probably got into trading in like 2009, 2010. And the environment, at least in 2010, was super choppy. And forget about the price action, think about the headlines. Right. Because as a new, as a new market participant, you are fully exposed to the ups and downs of the news cycle, right? You're not focusing on price. You're focusing on the news. So it's scary. And so I thought it made sense to like buy stocks that were good value and short stocks that I thought were expensive. So I shorted Green Mountain, which killed me. I shorted Amazon a bunch of times. Yeah, I would have been that guy too. Yeah, Definitely. You know, there's no earnings here. <laughs> <laughs> and I would buy stocks that had like, Netflix, Salesforce, Amazon, exactly. short yeah, them all. Exactly. Yeah, all the biggest winners. Yeah, short all of them. And then I would buy stocks that had a price to earnings ratio of six because I thought I knew something. Yeah. And it didn't go well. <laughs> right. And so my friend, the late, wonderful John Borman, had a great line about this. And he said, if you want to buy a stock because you want it to go up, well, buy one that's already going up. And the problem is, and he's not, there's, he, there's no problem with what he said. He's not 100% right. The problem is, oh, I already missed it. Yeah. Oh, it's up 40% of the last three months. Oh, it's up 180% of the last two years. Well, guess what? That's where you find the biggest winners. And you have to determine your time frame. If you are truly doing the work on a fundamental basis, and then assuming that you're actually right, you have to be willing to say, I'm not going to catch the bottom. This could still get cut in half. This might take three years to turn around. But think about the amount of work that you have to develop that conviction. And you can't, you can't do that as a new investor, right? Like it's just impossible. You don't have the chops. So you have to define your time frame. If you're in like an intermediate term time frame or a short term time frame, you can't trade on fundamentals. It's absurd. Yeah. So yeah, if you're trying to be a trader, it's much easier to buy a stock that's already going up or at the very least it's not going straight down. Yeah. And you you will only do that so many times. Eventually you will learn, ah, maybe I should avoid the 52-week low list. Yeah. Tom Gaynor said that he was in the Markel lunch a while ago and he said, you know, I used to hunt the 52-week low list. Now I get more of my ideas off the 52-week high list. And... You know, my first thought was like, oh, that's a late cycle comment. And then I was like, okay, well, why don't I stop being an idiot and actually listen to what this man's saying? Because he's a lot smarter than me. And I realized like you get yourself fishing in a pond of companies where things on average are going well. Right. So then then the question is like, okay, well, are you overpaying? And in theory, that's something that a reasonably decent investor can control. But I've found that when I get myself into the really, really bombed out stuff or the stuff that's down 80, 90%, and may maybe this is a different environment because of the liquidity difference that 
made everything shoot up and then crash. But when it's like an idiosyncratic stock that's come down, there's usually a lot of shit that's gone wrong in that company. Stocks that fall 80% for no reason. That's right. And like those management teams aren't that excited to like send cash back and potentially get out of their own jobs and like be a liquidator CEO. That's just not what guys get up out of bed to do every day and women, right? So I just think there's a lot of agency, potential agency costs that are incurred. And I at least used to look past those and be like, ah, it's all priced in. My perception of priced in is like the best way to lose money. Yeah. So I still enjoy picking stocks and I have zero illusion that I'm good at it. But I do it because it gives me enjoyment, entertainment, good content for the podcast. Of course, like I, I am an index investor at, I don't want to say at heart because you could do both, right? I, I believe in both. I think that for the majority of people, and I say like, you know, 99 point infinity nine <laughs> should start with indexing. You know, if you want to pick stocks, do it on the side. Don't like be the whole thing. All right, but all right, that aside. So what I stopped doing finally was I still buy stocks that have come down a lot, but I don't buy them on the way down. And mm. I don't need to catch the bottom. I just want to buy a stock that stopped going down or stabilized. So like two recent examples are Netflix and Meta. Like I wanted to buy them, but I'm not in the business of catching a bottom. Yeah. And so if that has to be like a stabilization for three months, five months, like I'd much rather buy something that has stabilized and found some sort of a base and give myself some sort of like decent risk reward. And then I'll go from there. And is that the best approach? I mean, it depends on different environments and what you're trying to do and blah, 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 blah. But I've at least stopped buying stocks as they're crashing. <laughs> like I've at least gotten to that point. Yeah. I can't quite buy the 52-week high list. I wish I'm, because I'm not that, you know, I'm not that good. That's what professional investors do. Yeah. <laughs> like they're able to see that the market is, these stocks are going up for a reason, whatever. That's hard and that that's a sign of a professional, I think. At least, again, not that you're going to buy every stock in 52-week high list, but to be able to pull the trigger after a stock has run, that takes guts, right? That takes conviction. Not buying a stock that's down 30%, that's easy. And that's where you get into trouble. Yeah. Well, and I, I think to be fair, I think what Tom was saying is like, he's building a bench of research, right? So he's like, right. I'd rather research yes. the companies that the market is telling me are doing well. And then it's on me to be patient and see when the stock comes back. And then if you see a whole industry group or, or sub-industry group, like there's reason why there's a tailwind behind all of these names. And then maybe you find the best one or whatever, whatever. Yeah. I think that this stock picking has kept me really interested in life. I am I am not convinced that indexing is not the way that I should go with the majority of my, my net worth. It probably is. Yeah. And, and, and for just for so many reasons, and I definitely don't want to get on the soapbox, it's boring, but just like for your own mental sanity, for your own mental health, yeah. right? It's hard to put a price on that sanity check. It's been like an interesting time to go through, like I've never quasi-professionally been through a bubble before. And the amount of like greed that I felt in 2020, like late 2020 to early 2021. And then ironically, some of the stuff that I owned that was like value-y is the stuff that got crushed earlier. And then mm -hmm. I felt like a real idiot because I was the one that was like not doing well and everybody else is still doing fine. And I was like, man, I suck. And then I don't know now that everything else has crashed. Now I, I guess misery loves company. I've kind of like gotten calmer. It's just been interesting to like document those emotional rides and like actually. It's the best game it. ever. I bought Exxon. So Exxon's a great example. I wanted to buy an energy company 
after it stopped crashing. So I bought Exxon probably around the early winter of 2021. I'm going to guess, I'm just going to chart, I don't know, probably 44 bucks or whatever. And I sold it, I guess, in the mid 50s. I thought I was a genius. The stock's at 112. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's hard. We haven't spoken about like riding winners, but like I was never able to do that. I guess because I was so quick to take losses, which was good. That I had discipline with. I never took a big loss, like huh. ever. Not in my life. I never that took helps a big math. loss. But I also never took a big gain. And that, you know, <laughs> it's hard to win when you, when, you don't, when you can't do that. Were any of your biggest losers in the book, were any of those people that cut short gains? That cut short gains? That's a good question. Right. Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. Not, not, not a fun I didn't moment, remember I it so. either. Yeah. But I, I did wonder. It must have been a fun book. I mean, I'm sure it was a bitch to put together, but it must have been a fun book to research. It was a lot of fun to research. I got to be honest, I really did not enjoy the process. Yeah. My first child was born, which made it a little bit more difficult to find the time, but I felt a lot of pressure. I don't know why. It's not like the publishing company was like hawking me. Like it was the exact opposite. Nobody was waiting for my book. You know, it wasn't like an anticipated thing, but I just felt a lot of internal pressure and I don't know. I didn't like it. You don't want to uh, put out a piece of crap. You've got your name on it, right? Yeah, so you I want thought, it to be I, good. Yeah. So on the one hand, I was beyond, I was over the moon that like somebody was like, willing to let me write a book like me. So I was, you know, thrilled that I had the opportunity, but the actual process itself was not, for me at least, was not something that I would look forward to doing again. Yeah. I don't think that it would be a very enjoyable experience either. Toby's, I mean, Toby's working on another one. Toby cranks him out all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So I think he likes it. I think he enjoys getting in the zone of writing, but if I would do anything, I'd probably do a blog, but I, I can't get myself to write that consistently. I probably should. How much better is this? Like, so I don't write very much anymore because I'm doing four podcasts a week. Like, I don't have that much to say, you know? Yeah. So there's people that, like, Josh is an incredible writer. He could sit down and write something beautiful in 15 minutes. Like, I'm not. Like, I struggle to write. I'm not a good writer. So it's not something that I just, I can't spit something out in 30 minutes. I don't have time to spend the time that it takes to put something good together. So yeah, writing's, writing's tough. And I don't think the audience is that into it. Yeah, I think it depends. My only strong opinion is I think that both audio and writing, I think audiences are into short blurbs or really long form. I don't think the middle attention is something people are that interested in anymore. I think that's a good, I think that's a good point. Like if you are enjoying a 20 minute podcast, you're like, you're done? Yeah. Right? You don't want a 20 minute podcast. Like, so I think you're right. Like I listen to a ton of ringer content. I listen to Simmons and Rusillo and the big picture and the town. Well, the town's actually a short one, but it should be short. But those guys go long and I listen to it all. I, I don't want like three and a half hours of them, but like I'm I'm, I'm down for a 90 minute one. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You listen to Tim Dillon too, right? Not that frequently, but he's incredible. Oh my God, dude. He had one a couple ago that I was like, I think he's trying to get canceled. Like, I don't know how the words are coming out of his mouth and he has sponsors, but he's coming to Florida in, in March. I'm, I got to go see him. I saw him at the Beacon a couple months ago. He is out of his mind, and I mean that in the best possible way. Yeah. Like, yeah. he definitely pushes the boundaries. McMurtry took me to a comedy club in New York. and uh, this... Which one? The Cellar? No, it was on the east side of, the, of Manhattan. Okay. I've been to the Cellar. I used to live there. I, I spent a summer, I bartended at Jake's Dilemma on the Upper West Side. I actually went last night, and that's actually what, what Dan and I were just texting about this morning. I went last night, I saw Shane Gillis. Oh, nice. I was crying and I texted Dan. I was like, I think this is your guy, right? And yeah, 
it, it, yeah, he's, he's incredible. Dude, when they get in, this guy that I can't tell the joke publicly, but he was just telling a joke and it was so inappropriate and I was cracking up so much. <laughs> and then I turned around and the entire place was just dead silent and I was crying laughing. You know, and he's basically like, I'm for this guy. Yeah. Right. I've had one of those moments where you're like laughing, crying, like longer than is socially acceptable. (laughs) But I think like you just, I don't know what goes on chemically when you get that sort of uncontrolled belly laughter where you have tears, but like it feels so good to laugh like that. Because where else do you get that belly laughter? You can't, you can't. There was a part of me that was disgusted with myself for laughing that hard when everyone else was silent. <laughs> and then there was a part of me that was really proud. I was like, yeah, you guys just don't get this guy yeah, like no. I do. Yeah. Something else that we had to talk about. Rumor has it, you are a flag football coach. Is this true? <laughs> I'm an assistant. Yeah. It's the best. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. What do you guys play? Are you five on five? It's seven on seven. Ooh, I got to step up. The, how old are your kids that you're coaching? Well, they're going to be nine next year. Okay, so, they were so I'm eight. a little bit behind you. We've got we've got five year olds, and it's so cute. It really is. It's just so cute. I'm doing lacrosse at seven. Seven year olds lacrosse. I'll be the assistant. The head coach was gone, and I had to take over. And I didn't. Are know you head coaching material? I don't think so. Not yet. I think I'm, I'm like not. the motivator of the children. I don't think I'm the guy. Yeah. At least not in lacrosse. I think in in football, I actually understand the X's and O's a little bit. Lacrosse, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So personality-wise, I'm not a head coach. And what I mean by that is like, there's dads that are like, I'm too self-conscious. Like, I don't know why. Whatever. It's just who I am. I, I can't like corral like a group of boys. Like, I feel like they're judging me. No, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. Even though they're fine. I'm, I'm sort of making a joke here. But I'm an assistant coach. That's my lane. I was like actually pretty good at it. What I was embarrassed about at the end was I looked at the parents and I was like, I just screamed at your kids for like an hour (laughs) and I hope that you liked it. And they did. But there was this one play. We had this big kid Bryson on our team and like they were terrible, man. Our team was atrocious and we were playing this really good team and we drove down the field and we threw one off for Bryce and he catches it in the end zone and I went ape shit and I spiked the ball on the sideline oh and it God. like rolled into the next team's <laughs> game and then I felt like such a schmuck. Yeah. I was like, yeah. I can't believe I'm doing this. So you're going to continue to coach? Yeah. It's the best. That's great. Yeah, it's really great. It's like one of the most rewarding things I do and I would say it means nothing, but it doesn't. It actually means like everything. No, of course. It's, no, it's fun. It's great. How many kids do you have? I have two boys. There you go. The five-year-old is turning six in a month, and I've got a three-and-a-half-year-old. What about you? Nine, seven, and five. Okay. So oh, third. Yeah, the all boys. Oh, wow. Yeah, so we had to get a dog to get a girl, and it worked uh, out. There you go. My wife wants a third, but I can't do it, I don't think. Dude, my buddy, his wife wanted a third, and now he's having twins. Ooh. And he Ooh. told me, and I just started laughing at him and said, I'm sorry. Ooh. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. They need to put an addition on the house. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Anyway, I don't know, man. I just want to say hi and, you know, I'm down to keep chatting or I'm down to let you go, but I appreciate you stopping by either way. Yeah, I'm going to opt to go only because I do have a calendar thing. All right. Well, that works. This was a lot of fun. I I told you before we started that I I really don't like interviews, like it's not my thing. And so you made it easy and this was fun and I really appreciate you having me on. All right, man. Good luck with the day and thanks again. 